This morning, um, my title is sermon. My sermon is titled "A Wee Little Man," and so I thought I would tell you some jokes at the expense of small people this morning. Although it's probably terribly inappropriate. I bumped actually. I bumped into uh, a really old, short friend of mine yesterday. It's such a small world. He told me that uh, he had a party. And he hadn't invited me because he only invited other really short people. But I wasn't offended because it was just a little get-together. <laughs> he's, he's actually this short baker. His name's Peter. And I visited his bakery. And he was telling me all about, he's baking all these flatbreads. And it was fascinating. I love the pita patter of tiny Pete. The pita patter of tiny Pete. It took me a few read-throughs to get that one. But I think, you know, short people are oppressed. They're always getting overlooked. And uh, I, di- I saw, actually, a midget nun today, and all I could think was, oh, ye of little faith. So I say, appreciate the little things. Give a short person a hug. Have I offended you yet? Some of you? No. I wonder how many small jokes Zacchaeus got in his life. I wonder how many jokes were made at his expense. That's who our story's about today. We're in the, the throes, the end of Luke chapter 19, and uh, Jesus is almost there. He's in Jericho. He's almost to Jerusalem, 27 more kilometers to get there. Or you could take bus 36 or bus 63. Both of those will get you from Jericho to Jerusalem, Jesus will probably have to walk it since they didn't have buses then. But it would take one day on the Roman road from Jericho to Jerusalem. One day of hard walking, they could make that in one day. All those veiled and not so veiled references to his death and his resurrection are waiting in Jerusalem. It's one more day, one day from triumph. By verse 28 of our chapter, chapter 19, Jesus will be doing what we refer to as the triumphal entry. He'll be coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, and people will wave their palm branches and and lay down their coats and shout those messianic acclaims. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's one more day from Jerusalem, one day from weeping over her. In two chapters, Jesus will be betrayed and handed over to authorities and they'll falsely accuse him and convict him and then execute him under the most brutal of Roman capital punishments possible. Death on a cross. But before he does that, before he goes there, there's someone important he's going to visit with. Someone important that he's going to stay with. Let's read the story. Luke chapter 19, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or if you have it on app, you can look it up. Luke chapter 19, and I'm reading in the ESV. He entered Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jerusalem and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because because he was small of stature. Such a nice way to say it. 
So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to, the, to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This morning, we're going to hear about how our little lives are transformed, or we could say enlarged, by the lavish love of Jesus. Our little lives are transformed or enlarged by the lavish love of Jesus. I think a lot of us have little lives. There's a show um, we watched I don't know if it's still on, but several years ago, Lauren and I would watch this show. It was called Tiny Houses or Tiny Homes. Yeah, some of you have heard of it. It's a weird show. You watch these people, and they, they take whatever they have, and they build this off in their building, I think, these little houses. And it's like a shed. It's so small. And you go in, or like maybe it's the size of an RV or something. Like It's pretty small, and everything in this house has to have multiple purposes because there's no space in this house. I don't even think I could fit the stuff in my bedroom into this house. There, there's so little space in these tiny homes. But these people, they love it, and they're making it, and they're choosing to live a certain way, choosing to live small. Now, we also watched a show around the same time, and I, I think it was maybe Million Dollar Rooms or something like that, or there's Extreme Homes, or something like along those lines. And in this show, they would show these lavish rooms, one room that was that cost more than a million dollars to renovate. And so, you know, the, the guy who's sharing about this room that he's so proud of, it would be like his theater room. And he would say, you know, we had to rip all the seats out and we had to make these special custom seats because, you know, they have to like, you know, do the D-box thing or whatever. And, they, and you need this special thing and this special thing. And he would go around and, you know, I've got this coffee bar and this multi cappuccino machine all these different things and he'd go through all these things and by the time you get to the end you like i would be feeling sick because i'd think like wow i don't know if you need the, like the gold inlay you know thing on here that costs another hundred thousand dollars you know or the marble that tile from um straight from italy that was custom made and you know hand carved or whatever like wow this is crazy These two shows are surprisingly similar. Both of them are people who are living small. They're living small. And I, we often idolize the latter. We think, oh, that person's got it made. Like, look, they, you know, look at this house, look at this room. And we think that's where it's at. And we think that's the end goal. And then... Maybe if we got to know them, I think some of them we'd find that actually their lives are very small, even though their rooms are very big. Very often, those with the most stuff have the smallest lives. Jericho is a wealthy town. It's a fertile, lush area. It's like the desert 
and there's a spring right there. It's called Elisha's Spring, and it waters the area. And so I think of Southern California. I've never been to Jericho, so I'm thinking Palm Springs. This is not Jericho. This is Palm Springs or the golf course in Jericho. Either one. You, you just decide what, how you want to imagine it. Palm Springs is the picture, though. And, and in Jericho, that's where the wealthy Romans and the, the Jew, Jewish snowbirds would go and they would build their villas there. This is the place where they go and they built their winter homes. Like King Herod built his winter palace here. This is the place. So to me, this is a great place to make your fortune. Or to be a tax collector. Right? Looking for the wealthy so you can tax them. This is a good place to be a tax collector. Historians like um, Strabo, Pliny, Josephus all emphasize Jericho's economic, administrative, and military importance. This was a place to be. It was an important place. Now, the tax collectors, the way it worked, if you don't know about tax collectors in Jesus' day, the way it worked is the Romans would hire someone, usually maybe a local person, and they'd say, you know, you're the tax collector. You need to go get the taxes and bring us this amount. So whether it's 5% or whatever the number is, bring us, you know, 5% of everyone's or whatever the number. And so the tax collectors would go out, and they'd get to go with Roman authority, which meant they get to take Roman soldiers. So when they knock on your door and they're collecting taxes for Rome, they're also going to take a little bit extra for them. That's how they're going to make their living. Now, Rome was okay with the setup that the tax collector could take as much extra as he wanted as long as there are no riots, right? So he's got the soldiers to back him up. So imagine the knock on your door as someone's collecting for the taxes and their new Ferrari. That's how it would feel. Now, when I picture Zacchaeus walking around town with his big stooges, I picture this. I picture the Lorax. I don't know if you, you're into the animated films, but this is how I, who I picture. I picture this little man with two big stooges, and he's going around, and he's collecting money. So it doesn't matter if people respect him. It doesn't matter if, you know, he has influence in town. What matters is when he walks through the crowd, people get out of the way. More like a mobster. You picture the mom and pop shop and the guy comes in and says, hey, pay up. And you better pay up or your, your shop gets trashed. That's more what it's like. And Rome's okay with it. Now, the power is a, is a facade. When little Zacchaeus looks in the mirror or he lies in his king-size bed or he sits at the park or he sits at the dark, I think he feels his smallness. I think he feels the emptiness, and he feels how little he really is. That's how it works. Maybe some of you heard this story a lot of times. It's a Sunday school favorite, and so you, you stopped asking the questions about the story, like, why does Zacchaeus climb a tree? Why does Zacchaeus climb the tree? When's the last time you saw a Wall Street lawyer climbing a tree? Phil, how many times have you climbed a tree recently? No, no, okay. What about a top orthopedic surgeon? Have you seen that? Or what about a prime minister? Okay, maybe our prime minister might climb a tree. So picture someone else, like a, maybe a cabinet minister or someone, a mafia mob boss, or your grandmother. Is she climbing trees? <laughs> Certainly not a first century Jewish man. Now, the argument could be made he's almost half Roman. 
because of his allegiance, but still, men didn't run. They're wearing long robes. They walk with dignity. Men don't climb trees. They stand with dignity. So why does Zacchaeus climb a tree? I think maybe it's been a while since he felt like he had any dignity. I wonder how many insulting Aramaic wordplays there are between tiny trader and Zacchaeus. I, I don't know. My Aramaic's not good, so I don't know. But I thought of some English uh, things they could have used, the different things they could have said, short, slight, trifling, diminutive dwarf, minute, miniature, midget man, tax collector, thief, trader, turncoat, pickpocket, crook, quizzling, sinner, publican, reprobate, outcast, pariah, leper. Things Zacchaeus maybe has heard. So maybe he just doesn't care anymore about the facade of dignity. He just really needs to see Jesus. That's what he needs. And that's what he's ready for. When you realize how small your world is, how small you really are, you begin to feel a desperation. And for Zacchaeus, it turned toward Jesus. Luke says he was seeking to see who Jesus was. The rumors had circled. This is Jesus. Jesus who? Who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who healed the shouting blind man, who raised Lazarus at Bethany, who healed the, the, set the lame walking and the deaf hearing and the possessed to freedom. Jesus who welcomed the lepers and the sinners and the broken, who proclaimed the kingdom open for every willing heart. Revelations 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So if you feel the smallness of your life, if you're ready to see who this Jesus really is, and maybe you've wondered, maybe you're exploring it. And if you can let go of the facade of your dignity, what you prop up as being your dignified life, to encounter the living God, then Jesus is here to enlarge your world. It's about real life expansion. But he does uh, seem a bit like a reckless rabbi. Maybe you don't like that word. Reckless rabbi. There's a song that has the word reckless in it. I want to read you a story that it reminded me of about a guy named Hosea and uh, a, a girl named Gomer. And if you have a problem with that name, it was written a long time ago before it became a weird word for us, maybe. Frederick Buckner writes this. Gomer was always good company. A little heavy with the lipstick, maybe a little less than choosy about men and booze, a little loud, but great at a party and always good for a laugh. And then the prophet Hosea came along wearing a sandwich board that read, the end is at hand on one side and watch out on the back. The first time he asked her to marry him, she thought he was kidding. The second time she knew he was serious, but she thought he was crazy. The third time she said yes. He wasn't exactly a swinger, but he had a kind face and was generous. 
He wasn't all that crazier, much crazier than anyone else. Besides any fool could see, he loved her. Give or take a little, she even loved him back for a while. And they had three children, whom Hosea named with strange names, like, not pitied for God, will no longer pity Israel now that it's gone to the dogs. So that every time the role was called at school, Hosea would be scoring a prophetic bullseye in absent, absentia, absent, he was absent. (laughs) Absentia, thank you. But everyone could see that the marriage wasn't going to last, and it didn't. While Hosea was off hitting the sawdust trail, Gomer took to hitting as many night spots as she could squeeze into a night. And any resemblance between her next batch of children and Hosea was purely coincidental. It almost killed him, of course. Every time he raised a hand to her, he burst into tears. And every time she raised one to him, he was the one who ended up apologizing. He tried locking her out of the house a few times when she wasn't in by five in the morning. But he always opened the door when she finally showed up and helped get her into bed if she couldn't see straight enough to get her there herself. And then one day she didn't show up at all. He swore that this time he was through with her for keeps. But of course he wasn't. And when he found her, she was lying, passed out in a highly specialized establishment located above an adult bookstore. And he had to pay the management plenty to get her out of her contract. She'd lost her front teeth and picked up some scars you had to see to believe. But Hosea had her back again, and that seemed to be all that mattered. He changed his sandwich board to read, God is love on one side, and there's no end to it on the other. And when he stood on the street corner belting out, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? For I am God and no mortal the Holy One in your midst. Nobody could say how many converts he made. But one thing that's for sure is, including Gomer's, there was seldom a dry eye in the place. That's a real story from the Bible. There are some times where God doesn't seem to make much sense. I could have called that one. So what is Jesus thinking when he says, I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So there's a Bible commentator that writes, this was worded as a mandate, not a request. It's actually the only place in all the Gospels where Jesus invited himself to be someone's guest. 17 uphill miles from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's too far to go if you're already there midway. So you've got to stay somewhere. But Jesus would get lots of invitations. Why does he need to go to Zacchaeus' house? I'm with these guys. It just, it, it doesn't make sense. It's like the traveling evangelist staying in the hotel above the strip club. It just doesn't look good. It's bad for your reputation. And when they saw it, they all grumbled and said, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Reckless is a good word for it if you don't care about your reputation. Reckless like the love of Hosea for an unfaithful prostitute. Risky. Ridiculous. Reckless defined without thinking or caring about the consequences of an action. So why 
risk your reputation on Zacchaeus. Reminds me of another story. Earlier in Genesis, where God is forging a nation out of Abraham, whose son is Isaac, who's got twin sons named Esau and Jacob. God is going to choose between them which way the line goes to forge the nation of Israel. Now for me, Esau, he's, he's the choice. I mean, he's a man's man. That's a real picture of him. He's even got cool tattoos. He hunts and he grunts and he's hairy and he has muscles and he fights and he wins and he kills things, which is a manly thing. And he goes out and he gets himself a woman, two women. <laughs> Don't do that. And he's, he's his dad's favorite and he's the eldest and he's a man to admire, a man to follow, a man you could forge a nation out of. He's like an action hero with a beard. Like he could be Thor. Jacob. I mean, I don't, I couldn't find a picture of Jacob. There wasn't one. I had to go with like the closest thing I could find. He's, he's the heel, the deceiver. That's what his name means. He's weaker. He's second born. He lost the first fight to be first in the womb. He's second. He's soft and hairless. He's a chef, not a chieftain. The trickster, the tricked, the traitor, the stewmaker, the thief, the anti-hero. He'd be a better villain. And I struggled with Jacob for a long time, many years. And I finally prayed. I said, God, I disdain Jacob. I don't like him. I don't know why you chose him. And you know what I felt like God said? Well, he said, because he's like you. (laughs) No one will ever say Jacob did this. They will only think if God could make a nation out of Jacob, maybe he could make something out of me. And no one is going to ever say Zacchaeus was saved by keeping the commands. Salvation doesn't come to his house because he's done anything. (laughs) Salvation comes to his house because salvation invited itself over. When Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house. Jesus comes. And this is the story of God. This is how it works. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure, the living presence, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Choosing strange examples to display his glory, the glory displayed in these leaky, broken jars. I feel like if I'm a jar of clay, I'm a leaky one. I don't seem to hold water well or glory just seems to flow right out. Mostly the the examples all through the Bible are just human enough to be messy and embarrassing. Like, we should sanitize their stories. But they're desperate enough to trust him. Desperate enough to trust him. And their faith in God is to make something beautiful out of the mess of their lives. And this is the lavish love of God that he chooses to do this.
for our, oh, no, we have a rule in our house. It's a pastor family rule that if I tell a story about someone and I don't ask them first, I owe them lunch. And I just realized I didn't ask Lauren. Too bad you guys in the front row here. It's Lauren. For our second date, I'm going to tell and then I'll pay the, pay the lunch so you can hear the story. On our second date, Lauren and I, well, we argue over which date, but it was early, second or third. We, I asked Lauren if she would go hiking with me in Golden Ears Park. And at the time, we were at Trinity Western, so I just knew there was this big, beautiful park with hiking trails over in that place called Maple Ridge. Didn't really know much about it. And we had to take the ferry to get over, so that was good. We could sit and talk in the car, and I figured we'd be talking on the trail, and this would be a really great thing. So we drive, and we drive into Golden Ears Park, and we get a little map, and she's looking at the map, and I'm driving through Golden Ears, and I suddenly start feeling like this is the kind of park that you could walk, just stop your car and start walking, and you'd end up in the Yukon. That's how it feels. I don't know if that's true. That's how it feels. Like, this is a big park. And so we're driving, and she says, oh, why don't we do this Gold, gold Falls Trail? That sounds kind of neat. And so we're like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so we park the car. We get out. We walk the Gold Falls Trail. Is that what it's called? Gold Creek. Yeah, Gold Creek Falls. Whatever. You all live here, okay? So the, the place where there's the falls, we were walking that trail, and we got to the end. We saw the falls, and it was beautiful, and it was great. And we took a picture. Still have that picture? And then we said, you know, the date's still young. Like, we got through this pretty quickly. So where, where else could we go? And we looked on the map, and on the map, next to the short trail, there was another long trail that was parallel. And so Lauren said, I'm sure it was Lauren who said this, and she's up in Jubilee Kids, so I can make this claim. She said, hey, that's pretty close. Why don't we just go to the next trail, and we can keep going, and then we'll just come back. And I said, um, okay. This is how our relationship goes. She says, she says, we should do this. I said, um, okay. And so we left the trail and went into the forest in the direction of the other trail, which is parallel. So, I mean, how lost can you get? Golden Ears Park goes to the Yukon, okay? <laughs> we ended up in the Yukon. No, but it felt like that. We hiked for a long time, and what we must have done is, because it's not straight, it's like trees and hills and rocks and valleys and creeks, all these things. So we must have turned and been walking in the middle of that because we were like climbing over logs and walking for a long time. And I started thinking, she's talking about her life, and I'm thinking about death. Like, we're going to die. I, like, I like this girl, but, you know, do I want to die here with you? I don't know. I don't know if I know that yet. And so we're, we go along this trail, we go, and go until finally I said, I think we're lost. And she said, yeah, maybe we're lost, but it's okay. I was like, no, it's not okay. This is near the Yukon, you know? And then finally we found, we found trail, and we went down to the, in case you're wondering if we made it. We did make it. We found our way back to the trail, following the river. It was okay. Nothing like creating a survival situation to solidify the relationship, though. But those moments when you feel lost, I feel like a lot of us feel that way more than we care to admit. Like a little bit panicked, 
a lot lost. Isaiah 52, 6 describes it like this. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. It's like literally what we did. We left the path to try to find our own way. And it didn't work out well for us. There's a deep sense in many of us that we're lost. And I don't just mean people who aren't Christians. Christians too feel lost. We can feel lost when we lose our purpose or we lose hope or we feel confusion or waves of doubt or we struggle or we try and we fail and we feel lost. Sue Monk Kid says stories have to be told or they die. And when they die, we can't remember who we are and why we're here. For me, I feel most lost when I forget the story of God, when I forget who God is and what he's done, when I forget or lose sight of his faithfulness and his love and his goodness, I start to feel lost like I'm wandering. What if part of our being lost is that we've forgotten the story of God? We've forgotten who he is and how our story is a part of his story. Who's lost? The rich are lost, aren't they? Isn't that what we just learned with the rich young ruler? The rich are lost, right? It's impossible. Like something about a camel and the eye of a needle. Do you remember that? If you were here a few weeks ago. Something about it being impossible and possible for God, maybe. So my question is, why does the rich young ruler get turned away? He leaves sad. And rich Zacchaeus, he's rich too. He gets Jesus coming over to his house. Why does the thieving tax collector of Jesus visit and the rich young ruler gets just, he's just sad and he leaves. Why is that? Well, this is the story Jesus tells in Luke 15 of a prodigal son and a prodigal father and an elder brother. And by that, I mean a son who lavishly wastes his inheritance doing whatever he thinks will make him happy, saying yes to every possible pleasure he can find. And he has the money to do that. And in the end, he's dumpster diving in the pig pen, eating the slop. And the lavish love of a father who stands by the window and watches for his son and watches and watches or up on the roof is watching and watching. And when that Son comes with his shoulders stooped in shame. That father hitches up his robe and he runs, very undignified, down the drive to where his son is. And he grabs him up and he hugs him and he kisses him and he won't stop kissing him, interrupting his apology with, let's throw a party. We're going to do it. Come on, everyone, celebrate. My son was dead and now he's alive. And when they go, the older brother hears the sound and he refuses to go into the party. He says, no, I won't go in. How can you celebrate him? And the father says, come, he's your brother, he's alive. And the story ends with the older brother outside. It's the third parable in a row where lost things are found. And Jesus answers the challenge of the religious critique on him. Why are you hanging out with a sinner? There was a 
really great commandment-keeping guy, you could have hung out with him. And Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Because this is a story about the love that finds us. And a love that invites itself to lunch. And a love that runs down the road to kiss us in our shame. And a love that sees us up in the tree. And hears our blind, shameless yelling. And meets us. And meets us with salvation. Saving grace. And like Zacchaeus, when we experience the lavish love of God, we will need to respond. We will want to respond with a real action, with real change in our life when we experience this. The law required that if you defrauded someone, if you stole money by fraud, that you would make restitution by giving back one-fifth over top to make restitution. So, and that's in Leviticus 6, verse 5. Now, you have to pay four times restitution if I stole your, Brian's cow. He has lots of cows. If I stole his cow and his cow died while I stole it, I would have to pay him back a cow plus four, four times restitution. But if we found the cow, it had wandered off after I stole it, then I'd only have to make two times the restitution. So when Zacchaeus says he's going to pay back four times He's, do, he's like, does he not know the law or does he, what's he doing? He's responding over and above what the law would say that he needs to do to make restitution. And the reason is because Zacchaeus knows he's a sinner. Zacchaeus knows. He knows when Jesus comes to his house. Oh man, I can't believe this. And he knows what everyone's saying. And he demonstrates that his life has been transformed. And it's not because Jesus is telling him to, like we like to do in the church, hey, you need to do this. Hey, you need to fix that. Hey, you just got here. Well, fix this, fix this, fix this. And then you'll be okay. Jesus doesn't even do that. Zacchaeus just does it because that's what you do when you get around Jesus. Lame people run. And rock throwers drop their rocks. And prostitutes weep. Demons yell. Religious people get angry. Broken people get healed. And lost people get found. And repentant tax collectors pay exorbitant restitution. So unlike the rich young ruler who can't let go of his money, Zacchaeus will do more than is required of him. And he'll experience something new. He'll experience the transformative, abundant, eternal life found in Jesus. And his life is changed. And so, in conclusion, our little lives are transformed or enlarged by the lavish love of Jesus. I think we live little lives. Lots of us are living little lives, midget proportions, dwarf servings. And we're, we stingy ourselves into a poverty of life that's not necessarily connected to finances. We live small and we allow the world to sell us a counterfeit bill of goods. And then Jesus chooses us for some crazy, ridiculous reason. Unknown to me, Jesus chooses you and me. And in two more chapters, he's going to go to the cross. And the Bible says he does that for you and me. To set us free. To bring salvation home in our hearts. It almost seems reckless. (laughs) 
because he knows the end. And there's a lavish love. The never-ending, unbreakable, unshakable love of God seems unbelievable until you experience it. And even then, it seems unbelievable. (laughs) And the more you experience it, the more transformed we become. We enter into a life that is being changed day by day, more and more like him, more and more transformed into his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you, you don't, just don't seem very religious when we read all these stories about you. You just are constantly doing things to throw off everyone who's standing around, expecting one thing and you're doing another. And you make these sweeping statements like, like you're, you're, you're after the lost. You're gonna, you're, you've come for them. And Jesus, we proclaim that uh, we are lost in so many ways. Even those of us who know you and who've trusted you with our lives, Lord, we experience times where we feel confused or we feel lost or we feel like we're wandering. And we need you to come again with your love and set us on the solid rock. Lord, that we could see you. We could know that we belong to you and that you're working in our lives. You're working in our story. So Jesus, would you do that for those here who do know you, who surrendered their lives, and for those who are here who are still, still have questions and are still wrestling through who you are, Jesus, that you would meet them today with your love. You would knock on the doors of our hearts and we would open the door to you and invite you to transform us. Thank you, Jesus.